Hello everyone, Amelia Taylor-Hockberg here, Archinex Editorial Manager. We've got another bonus Archinex Sessions episode for you, and this time it's from China. Back in December of last year, the Bicity Biennale of Urbanism and Architecture launched in Shenzhen and Hong Kong, featuring an exhibition curated by Los Angeles-based critic Mimi Zeiger and designer Tim Durfee. Their show, Now There, Scenes from the Post-Geographic City, winner of the Biennale's Bronze Dragon, reconsiders what makes up today's idea of a city, specifically regarding our digital and virtual presences, as well as contemporary issues of globalized economies. The exhibition features work by Bessler & Sons, Walton Chu, Tim Durfee and Ben Hooker with Jenny Rodenhaus, John Zott Studio, Mauser, and Metahaven, as well as texts by Joanne McNeil, Enrique Ramirez, and Teresa Tierney. Mimi and Tim joined Paul and I in Archinex Studio to talk about the exhibition and introduce a discussion recorded in Shenzhen among Now There's participants and one of the Biennale's curators, Aaron Betsky. Their conversation, Where is Now, When is Then, makes up the meat of this bonus session. Enjoy. So I'm sure there was a lot of very like mad living possibilities going on, but you set on this fantastic title, Where is Now and When is Then? And that was the panel that was posed at the Shenzhen portion of the Bi-City Biennale of Architecture and Urbanism in Shenzhen and Hong Kong. And uh, our guests today, Mimi Zeiger and Tim Durfee, were the co-curators of the Now There Scenes from the Post-Geographic City exhibition. And then, as I understand it, Mimi, this panel, Where is Now, When is There, was the discussion to discuss both the, the exhibition, but also bring larger ideas from the Biennale together. Yes, the panel... We put together, we were invited to put together by the A-Formal Academy, which was the education program going on, running in conjunction with the UABB. And what we wanted to do or as part of this was to bring up some of the conversations that we had been having in and around the putting together of our exhibition now there. And we had the opportunity to have several participants in town for the opening, as well as um, have Aaron Betsky be part of the conversation. It had been posed as a panel and feeling a little sort of, I don't know, over panels, mm. a little like uh, overload on, you know, sort of one person moderating and other people talking. I took as moderator the initiative to ask the panelists to also sort of co-moderate with me. And the idea or maybe the prompt was that each of the panelists needed to prepare a question for every other panelist. And so as a question was asked and answered, the person who answered the last question needed to pose the next question. And in that sense, we were able to have a less hierarchical mm. panel. While I do jump in, as you'll hear, like I do jump in to try to move things around a little bit, it actually sort of forced the panels, the panelists to sort of engage with the work of the other panelists in a questioning way, not just a sort of responsive to what they said, but also sort of interrogating sort of the ideas of, around the works in the show. And so it was you were a moderator and also involved in the project with Tim, and you were also on the panel. Who else was on the panel that we should term it as something different for the purposes of this conversation? Yes. What would you like to call it? A, the slumber uh, party of our, truth our, or dares? Our participants in uh, our little truth or dare episode um, was, uh, if I go around the table and think about it, it was... Um, Aaron Betsky, who was curator of Reliving the City, which was the name of this year's Biennale. Tim Durfee, John Zod of John Zod Studio. Jenny Rodenhaus, who is um, a alumni of the Media Design Practices Program and a, a designer in her own right. And she worked on the project um, Everything on Time with Tim and uh, the co-collaborator um, Ben Hooker. And then we had Mona Mayhall and Asli Siebert. Did I get her name right? Service. Service. From 
the uh, Stuttgart and Istanbul-based uh, design practice, um, Mauser. And so really, we were bringing all these people from across the world together in this one place and sort of to have a conversation about, in a way, sort of the post geographic, which is, seems kind of perverse, especially since it was on a very um, sort of stormy afternoon and in a kind of semi-abandoned industrial building with lots of stuff kind of going on around us that we had to sort of focus around this one table and make this conversation happen in real life. It's kind of interesting. How did you select the panel? Well, um, the panel was partly sort of organically selected itself in a certain respect. And in, in, as, in as much as uh, Jenny Rodenhouse and Osley and Mona were going to the to the event, and we, we thought of this as a great opportunity to have these folks around the table. And Aaron came aboard quite early on, I guess, partly prompted by Jason and Merve. Jason... Hilford. Hilford. And uh, Merve Bahir. Yeah, who were organizers for the sort of educational component of the biennial. And so it sort of it sort of fell together. And John Zott, of course, was also there. So that, that sort of just made it work. So there was something sort of natural about the, the formation of the panel. Yeah, and it, with the exception of Aaron, everyone who was on the panel was also a participant in the exhibition. Um, so they were sort of there to speak to, to their work but um, also there to speak sort of to each other. And so when Aaron was there, was there any type of like, did he try, He because he definitely factors in strongly into the conversation. It sounds like he has been thinking a lot of, about these ideas that are brought up in the context, but beforehand and throughout his career, did you guys talk about beforehand what kind of topics you wanted to touch on or were you more about like just forcing people into the truth or dare scenario? Maybe force isn't the right Coerce, strongly suggest. <laughs> compel. Um, compel, um, invite them to participate. You know, the only sort of thing that Aaron said was, just don't ask me the first question. <laughs> and so, of course, um, you did. <laughs> no, no, no. I think, uh, Tim, I think I may have posed it to you first. But, you, um, you know, Aaron was very quick to sort of be responsive uh, and sort of be able to kick things around. And so I think none of us really knew what to expect because, you know, the difference between a panel where a moderator has all the questions and then, you know, sort of sets it up and kind of can anticipate sort of where something might go and something like this sort of truth or dare or experiment um, is that, uh, you know, the other participants have their own questions. So the agenda sort of are very fluid and can sort of shift at any time. Um, so it, it it was really lively, I have to say, for you know, for an hour of conversation between, you know, a half dozen people, it was really a lot of fun. Yeah, and, and the meandering nature, as you'll soon experience, uh, was in some ways authentic to the character of of our small show, which was intended really to open up questions, you know, rather than have a kind of didactic agenda, pretending that we know what we're exactly framing, but rather to, in many respects, respond to the premise and the assumptions that we felt were packaged with the overarching theme of the biennial at large. And so, you know, as, you, as you'll hear, we sort of start off by remembering, if you will, our original sort of questioning of the term city to begin with. So reliving the city, well, which city, you know, what is what is the city now as we're describing it? And so in, in many ways, um, the fact that it kind of goes a little bit all over the place and the, and the structure of the of the moderation it was in, in weirdly appropriate to that quality. I mean, I think there is inherent within the project itself as, as an exhibition, but also sort of as duplicated in the event, a kind of networked urbanism um, and that, you know, sort of multiple voices coming together collectively to discuss something and have that sort of as an even playing field in which some something else would happen and sort of questions would then emerge from that. Like we 
we kind of went through an hour and we still had on the table, you know, any number of questions that could be posed and could still be sort of reactivated with upcoming exhibitions or publications or sort of reflections as this work develops. I'd like to hear a little bit about, just for also the minds of our listeners, once they hear the actual talk, describe the space that the discussion happened in and the kind of overall, you said there was like storm, a stormy nature going on outside. What was the context and the atmosphere? It took place as one of the buildings that was part of the flower factory, which was our former flower factory near the port of um, Sheku in Shenzhen, which is the area which is the under the OMA master plan for the port area. But this is pretty much a, uh, it was pretty much a found object kind of a site. Like we were in something that had been only just barely renovated, if renovated at all. We were in a, I wouldn't know what to quite to call the building, but it was maybe like a, an office type space that had been opened up and a patio had been built outside that had a view over the port, which is quite beautiful. And we had been meant to do it outside. Um, however, it was pouring rain. So we were inside around a the Chinese version of an Ikea table um, <laughs> um, in sort of the remnants of a history of Shenzhen, which is rapidly not there. And it comes up in the conversation questions of memory and history and sort of crunchiness, I think, is how uh, Aaron starts to talk about it. So the, the room itself was... Um, a formal, very, very much, but also came with a lot of baggage that um, even though it looked so banal, uh, we couldn't help but respond to. Yeah, and there's this funny thing we learned about the uh, programming of the biennial exhibitions in Shenzhen is that at least in the last few of them, although it's only run a few times, they've had a kind of parallel agenda of, of development, of actually city urban development, so that they'll be in a place that's kind of derelict or or on the edge of the growing city and the uh, sort of injection of, of money and attention that's brought by the, the biennial itself will be kind of an incubator or sort of a, uh, a bit of fuel for, you know, bona fide urban development so that we actually visited one of the, the, pre, the location of the previous biennial, which is now a pretty vibrant, you know, kind of coffee shop artist kind of uh, space uh, area. But I mentioned that because we're sitting in that weird space with you know, kind of dust everywhere. And it really, and this is not a metaphor, it was the edge of the city. I mean, it, it was literally a place that had been covered with construction workers just hours before, you know, the, the, the building out of the space happened right to the very edge of the opening, just right at the very edge. And indeed, you know, it was, it was like a week or two later, that massive landslide happened in Shenzhen, which, as you might remember from the news, was essentially a result of taking many, many metric tons of uh, you know, cubic tons of, of uh, earth out of the metro system as it's growing and trying to find a place to, to put it. And if you've got a city that's growing as rapidly as, as Shenzhen is, the edge of the city is no longer the edge just a year later. And so indeed, they were building on top of that landfill. So there's something sort of strangely appropriate about that setting. So before we get to the conversation, is there anything else you guys want to kind of set the stage with or let our listeners know? Well, I'll say a couple things. You know, you'll hear that it's, it is indeed a, a conversation that goes all over the place. And I was sort of trying to point out that in many ways that's appropriate to the nature of the show. But I will also just add that and encourage people to track down to see this work at some point. We're going to get a way to get it online. And so that is, if, if there is sort of a missing element, it's clearly that the work itself is something that we sort of took for granted as a part of the conversation in many ways. 
And we're really, I, I will say that we're really proud of like the, the way in which those pieces speak to each other. It's only six works in the show. They're video based and they're all, uh, as I mentioned, really intended to, to, um, to kind of challenge our assumptions as, as architects and designers and urbanists about the, um, in a way, the subject itself, like, you know, what is it we're talking about? Obviously, as I mentioned, with with the questions of the city, um, but also what is the role of um, of culture in that conversation? You know, the smart city conversations are so dominated by questions framed by municipalities or corporations with some degree of money based motivation or, or or interest behind it, and indeed the sort of questions involving real people and experience and and all of those less tangible qualities of, of urban life are largely just like either made into some glorious utopian corporate scented vision, or they're sort of in a Hollywood version that's very dystopic. And, uh, you know, we're just sort of interested in, in, in raising that in, into the conversation. And I guess I would add that of the six videos, none of them are particularly alike, although there are resonances between them. So imagery like Google Earth satellite views will show up or um, navigation software or texting. But they're, you know, so that in a sense, it becomes a narrative essay of one, even though it is six distinct videos. And and in a way, each of the pieces are pieces that are going to go on to do other things, to make other works. But they, for this moment in time, they're sort of collapsing into a single essay. And I think that's really beautiful. And it, in a way, I would think of it a, and only kind of in reflection do I, based on what we saw as part of the rest of the Biennale, it's the counter to the research studio and the research studio kind of documentation, where you show series of mappings or artifacts or sort of analyses. This is, rather than that, it, this is actually sort of taking that body of research and then actually making work of it rather than um, sort of letting just sort of the documents sort of be the work. Should I give a brief description of the six pieces? That would be lovely. Really fast? (laughs) Okay. So one of them is by Bessler and Sons, Ian Bessler and Aaron Bessler. Ian's actually a graduate of our program here. um, And it's called um, Resolution Resolution Frontier. Frontier. Thank you. And it's essentially a tour of this femoral frontier in Google Earth where they were transitioning from one algorithm of rendering for these 3D elements in, 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 the, in the landscape into another. And so it's, it's kind of a ruin, you know, a digital ruin. And this tour, which lasts hours, it just flies in a loop, um, kind of lends presence and kind of credibility to this, you know, just deeply, deeply ephemeral kind of uh, phenomenon. Another piece, uh, also by a graduate of the program, Walt Chu, is, uh, is completely comprised of shots from interfaces and uh, various digital software, but composed in such a way to create a viable narrative filmic experience. All the sound, all the text, all of the imagery is sampled. And what's, I think, quite powerful about that piece is it takes, in the case of GPS software and other things like that, it takes the way in which digital software, in a way, despatializes a spatial phenomenon. And then through a cinematic process, he sort of respatializes it in a way. And so it kind of comes back as an urban experience, but that is weirdly descendant from, from its, its original thing. So, but, so, but it yeah. also drops back in the subject so that you'll be hearing sort of a, a series of navigation directions, and then it'll, it'll introduce a pronoun. 
Um, and with that one small modification, um, it radically changes how you understand the sort of urban experience. And the, the piece is called um, Estimated Time of Arrival. And so that question of arrival is not an abstracted, like, how long is it going to take you based on, like, what your Apple phone is telling you anymore, but it's about sort of the, the narrative arc of coming from the beginning of, a, you know, in media res uh, to sort of the conclusion and what happens there. Yeah. The other piece is uh, by Mauser, the sort of um, jump jet folks, Mona and Asli, and that tackles the sort of um, questions of, of reality and, and uh, unreality that we are familiar with in sort of philosophical contexts and sort of imagines a world where that is a given and then sort of folds it into the kind of continuum of considerations that architects take of, of just straight up materiality and, and, you know, atmospheric qualities. And then they sort of have extended that to include the realm of, of contested reality. Uh, it's, it's really, really beautiful piece. Metahaven, the Dutch designers, have uh, a piece in the show that looks at questions of personal and political agency in cities, but in the context of, of a deeply networked experience. And that's also very meditative in the sort of Mauser mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. And yeah, and Bowser um, sort of has a sort of architectural sort of backbone. It might be the the, the Louis Kahn, you know, um, if you ask a brick quote, um, which then becomes sort of weightless and spatialist as they start looking at apps where people are scanning rocks, which sounds so mundane, but actually becomes enormously poetic. And the piece is called Natural Wi-Fi, and it really is a meditation on materiality in a digital age without being nostalgic. It's not about loss of materiality, but it's actually about the potentiality of thinness and um, sort of weightlessness. And then the Metahaven City Rising uses Constance New Babylon as they're sort of intercutting with this kind of love story that is going on through text on top of it. And so, you know, even though it there are these things that seem sort of a architectural, they're always kind of coming back to some of the basic questions of, you know, sort of what is urbanism, what is architecture, what is a city? And so we begin to see these resonances start to sort of populate between these different pieces. Even like Ian uh Ian's piece, the Bezler and Sons piece um, on the frontier is a durational sort of question of what is what is the boundary of a, of a city and um, how does that shift and move in time? Yeah. Another piece is John Zott's uh, piece, which pursues a kind of extraordinary cinematic reality and in some ways is a really beautiful counterpoint to Mauser's kind of uh, statement. Um, and of course, there's also other sort of parallel agendas in his work as well, examining the notion of of pathologies as, as uh, embedded in, in architecture in different ways. And then the last piece uh, is this piece that I collaborated on with, with Ben Hooker and Jenny Rodenhouse, who is also on the panel. And it's called Everything on Time. And it looks uh, in sort of five chapters at the a kind of, a or the sort of um, primacy of, of the algorithm and of uh, efficiency and of logistics in uh, in an urban context. So what, what happens when there's the uberfication of everything, perhaps? Of course, they're different, examined in very different ways in, in, in the course of the of the piece, but but in a way that there's sort of surprising ways in which that ends up speaking sort of accidentally, I, I would say, to the other pieces in the show. Yeah, but I, one of my favorite pieces of Tim and Ben's work is, um, which is called Everything on Time, is the drone urbanism. So I think we've gotten really used to people saying like, oh my God, drones, like they're horrible, or oh my God, drones, they're great. I'm going to get one for Christmas. Their piece says like, Drones, like what's what's a city that is sort of built on the needs and efficiencies of drones and then sort of uses the softwares in order to map out and actually physicalize what that city might look like. And um, within that, you know, I don't 
think I've never seen something like that done before, where sort of you change the subject from the human subject to the drone subject, and suddenly you've produced a whole new kind of urbanism. And it, in the sense that that's kind of, you know, if the singularity is coming, like this could be a kind of um, place that we're getting to, but it's not that we're calling this a dystopic, you know, sort of tone. And I think tone was something we talked about a lot, but actually like this is sort of where we live now. <laughs> and so um, we're in this kind of context. And so how do we make work in a context that is uh, productive rather than sort of like hiding from facts or sort of celebrating, over overextending sort of the vision of what these might be. So now I really want to see these pieces. <laughs> Are they limited just to the Shenzhen Biennial? Some of them. I think there was, we have two pieces that are available online, uh -huh. two pieces that were produced particularly for the show, and um, one piece that you can't, it was not produced for the show, but isn't um, open online. But some of the ones that we can share, we can share with your reader, with your listeners. Okay. Well, we'll, uh, we'll make sure to link to those and I'll in send the show you a bunch notes. Of images. Cool. Excellent. Great. Should we get to it then? All right. Thanks a lot, you guys. Thanks. Thank Thanks. you. I don't know if we need to make introductions all around, um, but uh, Merva, thank you so much for inviting us to do that. Aaron, thank you for inviting us to be part of this and for joining our roundtable discussion today, um, which we're calling, if I get it right, uh, uh, where, where is now? Uh, where, where is now? When is there? Um, <laughs> you better know this. <laughs> I better know my own title. Um, maybe we, I can you know, say curator of the UABB. Uh, Tim Durfee is co-curator with myself of um, Now There Are Scenes from the Post-Geographic City. The award-winning. The award-winning. The award-winning Bronze Dragon. Um, he's also an architect uh, and a faculty at Art Center College of Design, Media Design Practices, um, who is sort of our I don't know, banner for on this exhibition. Um, and he is also the co-author of Everything on Time with Ben Hooker and Jenny Rodenhouse, who is over there. Um, and Jenny is a multimedia designer and educator at Art Center. She's also... Uh, does all sorts of incredible other things, including a past history of working at Microsoft and sort of independent uh, consulting and curatorial work, consulting and uh, projects. Um, and then we have John Zott here, uh, an award-winning filmmaker, now and more awards yes, your way, um, and an architect who has taught at Columbia and now is at Pratt. Um, the piece he has in the show is Architecture and the Unspeakable. And uh, Asli Serbest and Mona Mahal of Mauser are rounding out the panel today. Um, they approach architecture through various forms of media, including video, graphics, sound, text, um, all which comes together in their piece, Natural Wi-Fi, um, which is on view on the third floor. Um, and they are faculty at the Stuttgart uh, Academy of Art, Stuttgart State Academy of Art. And uh, we all know each other, but I'll introduce myself. I'm Mimi Zeiger. I'm co-curator of Now There. I'm a journalist and critic, and also teach in the Media Design Practices program. So that's, that's that hardest part of the today. Um, and then explaining our game today, which is um, a variation of um, maybe truth or dare. Uh, this isn't sort of... <laughs> 
Oh, you didn't know? Um, you didn't read your email. <laughs> so what I asked was that um, participants in the roundtable develop a set of questions for other participants. And so I'll kick it off with a question, but then when a question is asked of you, um, you'll finish your answer and then launch another question into the table. Um, I did this a few weeks ago and it made for a very lively exchange and sort of changed the hierarchies of who is a moderator and who is a respondent. And so um, with that, um, I think I'd like to actually take a question from inside of the show and actually is one that resonates um, with this show, uh, the sort of over Biennale, which is a very tiny question with a very big sort of, uh, sort of possibilities for answers. And I'm going to lob it at my co-curator, Tim, who, who is the one who first posed it, um, which is, what is a city? What is? A city. A city. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's been great. Uh, um, yeah, well, actually, uh, we, um, Mimi and I, were talking about... Uh, about this early on, and and trying to um, to bat around that very question, actually. To, but there's, there's there's a story before that which is really important, which is, um, you know, when we were kind of considering the effects of, of media on the city, and and and, and uh, you know, all of the wrestling with all of the sort of chatter about the smart city, and, and all of these things that are now so ubiquitous as as part of our almost daily conversation, um, we realized there was it, it felt as though there was no new territory to to um, to bring or no new kind of ground to, to introduce. And then as the conversation sort of went around, it occurred to us that perhaps we're not asking the right questions when we're sort of thinking about um, how you know we live in a city now and all of that. And we realized that perhaps some of the words within that question need to be themselves contested. And so um, and so that's what sort of brought the, us back to this notion of, of sort of saying, well, may, maybe we're actually assuming something that's perhaps uh, anachronistic. That, that is to say that a city has a set of assumed, uh, uh, you know, uh, definitions about a, um, you know, an agglomeration of, of human people uh, in, a, in a physical uh, context and, and all sorts of municipal expectations and ways in which um, those people are served. Um, and realizing, of course, something that's also been observed um, largely, but that, that indeed we are, our general investment and engagement in, in our communities now uh, is, of course, shifting over increasingly to, uh, to non-geographically defined um, communities. And, and, you know, it's a simple observation and it's around. There's a lot of things about people uh, making observations about the engagement on places like Facebook, you know, far exceeding many very developed and large uh, countries. Um, and clearly in the U.S. now, um, you know, exceeding by a great bit the, the political engagement that people have in their own, in their own places. Um, so anyway, you know, I certainly don't have an answer. What is the city now? But I think that I think that we're at a time when it's it's good to start to find new questions, and, and uh, instead of just assuming that um, you know all of the definitions of of, of what we're uh, talking about are, are you know are unchanging. So, um, and it's interesting. I mean, I just I'll use this as a segue into some of these op opening up, playing the volleying on your on your game. But um, you know, so. That's perhaps a slightly odd answer to this, which is deflecting it by saying, you know, well, I don't know what a city is, but maybe just saying I don't know what a city is is actually a slight bit of 
uh, of a provocation. And, and, um, and when we started to collect um, and, and pursue some of the people to participate in this, in this small show, which by the way, we really thought of it as a, as a kind of an essay. We didn't think of it as a, as a large exhibition that had a didactic purpose uh, or, or agenda per se, but rather one that was um, kind of more meditative and, um, and inclusive of additional questions. Um, we realized that all of these other questions started opening up, and that's sort of what, what, what I want to sort of bring up now is, um, is this theme that we sort of detected in a lot of the other uh, works that were in this having to do with um, you know, questions of, of the cycling of, of reality and fantasy and phantoms and mm. back to reality and, and, and then of course mortality and immortality as, as, as sort of uh, suggested through the sort of the fact that these streams of data will live out, outlive all of us by, by a lot. Um, and, and, and that those are, those are also part of the conversation of the city and they, they weren't necessarily in the same way in the past. Um, and so th that sort of also became very interesting is that, you know, as we break down what a city is and then open it up to other questions, we realize that it cycles other questions back into, into that perhaps revised definition. Um, but for, uh, you know, in Osley and Mona's uh, piece, um, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, during the installation, actually this time around, the last couple days, um, hearing it cycle through as we were installing. And of course, I knew the previous piece really worked really well. They actually submitted a revision of it for this um, most recent exhibition. And um, there's this really powerful image that they, they sort of hold as a, at the center of, of this um, little meditation of that piece, which is a kind of... Um, Reflection on on a rock, you know, as as a or stone, as um, as a a kind of vehicle for this for this um, meditation. Of course, Louis Kahn comes up about meditation on the brick, and and even the primitive hut emerges as as a sort of well known um, uh, metaphor that architects can respond to. Um, and it was really at that point when I started to realize that um, that I did have a question in, in connection to that. It's like, you know. If the primitive hut, when that first, you know, when Logier first sort of coined that, and, and it had it had a purpose, it had a, had a, uh, you know, perhaps that the way of introducing that myth was was instrumental for for um, for ideas that they were, you know, he was trying to promote within within the conversations of of, of an emerging um, discipline at the time. Um, how do you how do you understand uh, the primitive hut now? I mean, I mean, it. it, it it's, it's funny to even bring such a sort of first-year architectural reference up in this context, but I, I have to say I was really struck by, by, your, by your coming back to that. And, and um, what would you say is, is, is today's mythological agenda or, or, or agenda of, of, of introducing that myth, if, if you, um, uh, as, as you were saying, kind of referring to this strange stone that aspires to be a brick, that aspires to be a stone as a kind of... Um, Analog to this to this um, primitive hut idea. I think first of all um, that architecture is at all um, inventing the primitive hut um, as a as a foundational gesture um, marks an important step towards um, the autonomy of a discipline. That's first of all uh, what I what I would like to. To remark to the primitive hut thing um, that um, it's always um, a reference for a discipline that um, is haunting uh, for its own narratives 
um, in order uh, to somehow preserve an autonomous state. And I think um, what we've been um, experiencing since perhaps Rougier, since, since architecture is formed as a discipline, um, is a continuous um, haunting uh, for these narratives, for, for an identity. And, and that's why we, we always um, talk of a crisis of architecture. Uh, but for me, it's um, more um, a problem when the crisis is in crisis. <laughs> so I think it's inherent um, uh, and important for, for the discipline of architecture, even if this sounds a bit conservative, uh, that, um, that the, mythical, the mythical and narrative part is somehow um, important uh, to keep it alive as a discipline. And for us, of course, we are not so. We are talking about architecture more than about the city because the city is not. Um, you cannot discuss the city along architecture. Yes, you can, but it, it's not enough to talk about the city along architecture or about along uh, buildings. Um, but we wanted to address um, architecture as uh, something uh, that is deeply affected by media and that somehow also uh, shares um, desires that came up with media and with life with media. And, and for us this, this desire is somehow connected to the primitive hunt as something uh, that is quasi-natural, that is somehow growing from, from something um, um, and not invented. And that's always these, this, uh, this, this um, really foundational problem of architecture, that it's arguing um, about a natural ev evolution mm -hmm. of its own forms or of, of its own approaches, uh, and, and thereby um, somehow um, implying a crisis. But this crisis is exactly what is important to, for, for architecture to survive uh, with all technological improvements and smartness and all, all of these um, so super, super, super uh, advanced things that, that confront architecture in a way that, that is new and perhaps even too complex for, for, for the architect to understand. And even uh, we can see the primitive part, um, maybe uh, a little bit allegory, but um, it's maybe the way we are talking a lot, and let's take it as a ghost, uh, because uh, or uh, or phantom, because the phantom is a kind of ghost uh, which becomes um, material. Mm -hmm. Phantom is not not material; it's material, and um, and so it is a kind of uh, physical manifestation of a ghost, and then. Um, and even uh, as we also uh, respond in, in our piece, in our piece, like picture, um, like it's mimicking the nature and then becoming a kind of phantom. So it is also a kind of connection between the primitive past and and, um, and how we see it um, through the notion, the notion of the phantom. And um, yes, um, uh, Benjamin, what Benjamin describes the flaneur 
himself as a phantom mm -hmm. in urgent search for his own personality, somehow also um, translucent uh, in his character uh, because there's so many, um, so many spectacular uh, facts that 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 he is experiencing in the in the passage um, that that um, that he that he somehow. Um, Fatim is always between life and death, or something in the middle, um, um, and, and and the phantom is always in search for um, what used to mean, what it used to mean, or what it should mean, and what it what it what it could or what it could be important for. And a, a bit, we feel architecture is um, is a phantom at the moment. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna, if you have a question or I can interject to see if you want. Um, I, I guess I keep hearing the specter and the haunting and uh, I'm gonna kick it to Aaron because I'm, I was in the question of the re, um, as in like re-re, re -re, as in reliving the city and the sort of reanimation. And I, I feel like there is maybe embedded in the framing of the Biennale a, a kind of strange relationship with the past or things before um, that then need to get sort of you know, kind of dealt with. And that in, in that reanimation, you know, is kind of, are we dealing with zombie urbanisms? Are we dealing, you know, like there is, there is something in that. And I, maybe if you could comment a little bit, um, last night you were saying, um, you know, this is a Biennale that is looking at the past, but is very much grounded in the present, with potentially projecting into the future. Maybe talk about the, this relationship on the time and and uh, and the re. <laughs> um, it's interesting. I had not thought of it in terms of you know Frankenstein or uh, any kind of notion of that sort. Uh, and in fact, I have to say that. I have been uh, running away most of my life from any kind of discussion where architects worry about what architecture is and writers worry about what writers what writing is and musicians worry about what music is and then make their architecture, their music, their writing about that. I can't, it drives me crazy, I have to admit. I just, I find it a solipsistic, solipsistic um, activity that just makes my skin crawl. Uh, which is maybe, you know, uh, a specter or a something that's doing that. But to try to answer your question, um, what, what interests me, one of the things that interests me is, and, and it's interesting, I just wrote a blog which was supposed to have been out a week ago, but the way these things goes, it's still not out. But um, it's about what I call crunchy architecture, which is architecture where you can feel the crunch. And it's the opposite of the architecture of slick skins. Um, and it came from, I was having uh, some dim sum with a friend of mine in uh, Hong Kong who makes, in general, very slick architecture. I mean, he works for ADIS and he makes big slick buildings all over the world. Uh, but lately, his work is getting crunchier. Um, there's big concrete forms and then open uh, shapes that are very simple, um, but that are cantilevered out. So there's, a, again, a kind of materiality about it. And 
coming back and forth from the ferry to here, my thinking was very much about this notion that what attracts us um, about these kind of buildings is not just their oldness, but the confrontation that they have with our present and future lives, um, whether in an ephemeral manner, um, just by using them, or in the way that what we have to do just by hanging lights and putting them in them. And so for me, my editor, and the reason I bring it up is my editor came back and said, I'm lost, I don't understand your blog, are you talking about new buildings or old buildings? <laughs> and that's one of the, those moments where you fail, you realize you failed as a writer because the whole point was to say, this obsession with the new is so beside the point. Mm -hmm. This obsession with the old is so beside the point. Uh, it's neither the belief that we are creating the building blocks for a future utopia, nor the nostalgia for a past that never existed, but a rather uh, wandering through perhaps a flaneuring around um, the, the ruins of the past and the building blocks of the future and trying to bring them alive, trying to work with them, trying to see what you got and see what you can do with them. So that's what really interests me. That's the kind of um, obsession that I have. So I'll, I'll throw it back to Tim, although I, I guess either one of you, but I've known Tim Walker so well. Um, because, because part of what I'm trying to also figure out, and to me seems like the next step, is that for, for my students, I'm sure it's true for your students, this whole notion that my generation of critics still worry about, which is, oh, the youth of today, they're just digital and they don't understand reality, they don't know how to build, they don't draw, they don't make models, all that kind of crap. Um, and of course, my, my students, they just, they don't understand that there's supposed to be a contrast between these two, that you're not supposed to draw or you're supposed to only draw. They just grew up with all this stuff around them and just work with whatever's at hand. So maybe it will just happen by itself, but I still see this kind of uh, uncrunchiness about the projected realm, shall we say. Um, and that is to say that even if uh, in cinema, or what we call cinema, there by now is a kind of crunchiness that has a long, several decennia generation history, uh, architects, when they start working in the digital realm, um, are still awfully slick. And one of the things that interests me about your stuff is that it seems to be hinting at, at some crunchiness. But I guess I'll just ask the simple question, which is, when is a digitally-based practice or a projection-oriented projection architecture narrative going to become crunchy? <laughs> I think John can answer this one as well, so we can both do it. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. John, open up. Gosh, take it away from you. Well, I, you know, it's, it's, I think it's apropos that the question gets posed to Jenny and Tim because, like, of the pieces that are in our offering, I would say there's a step the crunchiest. Uh, <laughs> I was, I spent a little time with the pieces today before the panel, and I was taken with the kind of the visceral quality of your presentation, as it turns out. Um, and so I think that uh, uh, the kind of crunchy thing in in your work is one that is overt and embedded within the piece, whereas if there is crunchiness within what I produced with this thing, it's in it's the nature of the subject that was captured through 
techniques that are actually that were highly refined. Uh, and I think this question about crunchiness in the kind of digital practice is probably more appropriately focused on the kinds of imagery and the sequencing that we see in your piece. But I would like to kind of make a little bit of a pitch for the idea that crunchiness in the, in the physical question, which I, I was pursuing within the three proposals that are in that piece, I think is something that um, resonates with the ambition of this particular uh, manifestation of the biennial, which has been incredibly inspiring. I'm overwhelmed by that. But, uh, seeing the work within this environment, and seeing the environment be transformed and having a bit of a dialogue with the content within this exhibition has been uh, very kind of practice changing for me. Uh, but with that said, I think that you know the notion that that reuse takes on a somewhat casual agenda with the subject matter that it works with, so that this, the product is a synthesis of, of agenda, both in the past and in the present, is a really interesting question. I think it's one that circumvents a lot of the, kind of the, the pitfalls that the overt kind of postmodern discussion around this conversation, the kind of, stuff kind of looms large, and I think it's really, it's fabulous that, that, that we're trying to, through events like this, we're finding a way to talk about how to do reuse and these other kind of ideas from the past without getting trapped by the kind of nostalgia or the, kind of the academic hubris that were the big liabilities of postmodern. Uh, uh, but I can't honestly say that you know, crunchiness has been a big part of what I've been doing just because, uh, well, in terms of like the media that I've been working with, because it, one of the funny, the perverse things about design ideas we've been pursuing within the presentation mode is that it's very hard to get the computer to do something screwed up. Like it, the computer will do something very slick, very easily, and it, it's a rather perverse exercise of like carefully crafting these like rather crunchy suggestions within the computer that uh, uh, has me questioning whether or not we've been operating with the right media in order to pursue the kind of viscerality of what we see around us right now, which I am very interested in doing with my own work. Well, just to reflect on that, it's funny because I was I was trying to sort of digest. You know the, the the points you're making, Aaron. It's really interesting about about um, almost confronting one artificial binary, perhaps, but perhaps with another. If it's if it's sort of lateral versus the other other direction, yeah, the Joe J diagram. Yeah, in a way. Yeah, possibly that is what's what's, what's useful. But it it but just I wanted to add something, which is that you know when I think about um, you know if we think about some of this video work that is in this show as being crunchy, you know one could take that on as a, as a metaphorical crunchiness, let's say, so as certain architecture um, compels a kind of tactility and, and, and uh, incompleteness perhaps, then, oh, well, I can see that in the video and therefore that's analogous. But I guess I would sort of put out there that, that it's, it's more similar in a totally different way. That is to say that for me, um, what, and, I, and this is something that's been a long ongoing process in putting the show together, but also in the project that Jenny and I worked on with Ben Booker, um, um, is trying to think of media, not, not as media at all, but as, as our authentic context. Like, it is life, it is part of the continuum of our experience, no less or more than any of the objects around us. And, and in that respect, um, can be um, a subject, let's say, make it sound very top-down, but subject nonetheless um, to the kinds of, um, let's say, disciplinary lenses that architects are sort of trained to, to 
perceive the world with. And, and that is to say, it, it, is a, it is a material, it is, but you know, perhaps if, if material is material first and, um, and all of the sort of cultural package second, Perhaps media is just the same relationship flipped in some way. Um, it's 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 you know it's the um, antecedent to a, an eventual physicality that as perhaps um, whether it actually ends up happening that way or or it's something that we construct in our own imagination. And I guess I'm just sort of getting to the point that um, that for all of the artifice that we expect to see in video work or projective work, as it's described, I'm starting to sort of change my my own feeling about it, that I don't think of it as artificial, actually, I think of it as a pursuit of, of, a, of a different type of unfamiliar authenticity, you know, um, and I don't know, that's been an interesting, an interesting process, um, and I, just one last thing also to mention, John, you're, you're sort of invoking the, you know, the postmodern kind of um, position in, in the sequence of culture, let's say, and, um, and so much of what is exciting to me, and we were talking about this last night, about the early beginnings of the postmodern movement in architecture was the, um, was the kind of um, clumsy unformedness of it. And that was exhilarating to see because modernism had become this um, much, much larger than itself, and it still continues to be, this sort of set of assumptions, you know, newness, all of these sort of um, almost, um, almost religious scaled uh, ideological, um, uncontestable beliefs, and and to have these kind of um, a little bit of anarchic uh, reframing of what what those perhaps are, and but also the clumsiness of it. That's what I'm trying to get to, which is that in a weird way, the clumsiness of those that early postmodern sort of layer in the, in the stream of history um, is to me still. It keeps giving, and it seems weirdly relevant right now because, um, in a way, we're at a time of a lot of um, very well packaged and well formulated um, kind of positions. And in a strange way, it's the crunchiness gives more surface area, if you will, for for um, for opening up questions. If that makes any sense, it's a strange analogy, but. Mm. Well, can I, can yeah. I perhaps add a question, uh, perhaps to Aaron, uh, in connection to the crunchiness? Because there's this uh, rappel à l'ordre, um, which is by a young, by a young generation of architects at the moment in Europe, let's say. Some, yeah. Really, a few only. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, they are calling um, for um, for re-engagement in history, and mm. they. They tell us to refocus on uh, on the formal core of the mm -hmm. discipline and all these things. Um, so, um, if you perceive a sort of crunchiness um, within um, the practice of formerly slick architects, um, do you feel that it's it's only only but it's it's also a question of aesthetics at the moment. Like, um, are we, are we, do we have enough of all these slick, like let's say first and second generation digital architectures? And, and is it now like a next generation that is equally digital 
of course, because it's, yeah, yeah. it's not possible to do anything else than um, digital architecture at the moment. Um, but is it uh, a shifting in formal um, favorites, let's say, mm. or it, like is it is it something uh, we are perceiving um, a second postmodernism mm -hmm. or uh, reflected or um, um, I don't know something like. Um, Yes, a second postmodernism. Not a second modernism, but a second postmodernism. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, there's a, there is a, a large part to that. I mean, I predicted six or seven years ago that postmodernism was coming back. And about uh, five years ago, I was on thesis reviews in, was it, where was it? I think it was... UIC? No, it was like Princeton or Columbia or someone. Some, no, no, it was at MIT, at MIT. And someone was doing a full on um, Michael Graves anno 1986 floor plan, you know, crochet planning, the whole thing. And I actually found it fascinating. Um, and I, I do have to say, um, having grown up with postmodernism, um, there is a certain, I will easily admit to a certain nostalgia uh, for that form. Uh, and I think that we are seeing, I think you're absolutely right. Um, it's very funny, one of the those slick people, I was, I was also talking to Honey Rashid and Luzanne Couture, and I, went, I was in their office, and looking at this new uh, museum they're doing in Russia, and uh, I said, my God, it's so unslick. <laughs> and he said, he said, yeah, we're getting really tired of people confusing us with Zaha. Uh, and, uh, and she has a bigger office anyhow, so. Um, and he said it, and I, I probably even shouldn't quote him because it'll kill me, But because he said it in a kind of a flippant way, but I think it's a reality. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right. It's, you know, I'm, I'm not sure it's a rappel à l'ordre, because there's always a rappel à l'ordre. Every generation, there's people who think we need to go back to fundamentals and, you know, only do the right thing and all that. But I, I think that this notion that, oh, we're just tired of all this slickness, let's go back to what was right before that. Uh, and find something interesting there's a big part of it but but I have to be clear because what I'm saying is and I tried to say this in the collage seminar uh, as well uh, that it actually maybe maybe it's postmodernism coming back as a tragedy you know it was a farce and now it's coming back as a tragedy which is to say it's a kind of a tragic architecture um, uh, it doesn't have the slickness, the smoothness, the collapse of time, the collapse of space that was, and the, and the modulate, not just collapse of space, but the slick modulation of space uh, that was such a hallmark of what we think of today as a lot of postmodernism. Of course, difficult to generalize. Um, and in fact, there is this kind of um, combination of There'll be a bit, bit of parametricism, and then a bit of pochet planning, and then a bit of a crumbling building, all kind of mixed together. That, at least in the work that interests me. Maybe uh, call something else then, like high eclecticism. Well, that's what, that's what I'm calling it crunchiness, because yeah. crunchy, and with crunchiness, I also think because, I, I need to clarify, because for crunchiness, when I get an image of crunchiness, I think also of like a bowl of granola, where you have not only the granola, but you also have the milk. Uh, so it's the granola is swimming in the in the milk. So it's that kind of a combination. Um, for me, it's very important that it's that it's not pure, 
that it's very, uh, it is eclectic. It is all about sampling and grabbing and stealing and, uh, and, and doing so in a kind of um, self-consciously unselfconscious manner. I, we were just talking to a friend of ours and we were marking what a beautiful coat she had and she said, aha, and opened it up and it was this Martin Margiela uh, line called copy. And in fact, it was, uh, and it said inside Tel Aviv 1950. So it was just a coat he had found that had been made in Tel Aviv in 1950. And he represents it maybe with a different lining uh, as a Martin Margiela coat. That kind of, let's not pretend to make it our own, let's not slick it up, let's borrow it is, is part of what, what interests me. So. Uh, I'm trying to think of how to turn that into a question well, to someone else. We can always abandon As not pure, we can, we can definitely keep the... Go on, go ahead. No, I just wanted to poke at these two terms. I, I thought it was interesting, um, Mona, that you invoked aesthetics and then also this idea of tragedy. And to me, then I was thinking a bit, I, I, just now about you know, second postmodernism and all of this, and, and you know, is, it's as though we're nostalgic for being nostalgic. It's like our memory of a memory, whereas perhaps the first time around, you know, it, it was a memory. Yeah. <laughs> and now, um, you know, where, if, if indeed um, media or whatever, these uh, not overtly material um, phenomena are, um, are indeed creating um, kind of a lining uh, that is no less real. Um, and, and so when we're looking, we're seeing that lining. Um, and, 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 and if that's the case, um, then, then I think about this notion of tragedy. And, and, um, and one other thing to add is the, what you opened when you were talking about this were students that you're working with and, and, and what it must be like to be at that exact age, let's say, of, of just entering into, into studying architecture, for example, um, but with a, a kind of perhaps longing for a time when there was longing for something that you remember. I mean, it's sort of, it's, I mean, I know, I'm not going to overstate it, it sounds too recursive. And, no, no, I mean, and, it's like the whole, it's like the, it's the, it's the Amy Winehouse uh, Adele phenomenon where we, we love singers who are self-consciously imitating singers who were nostalgic for yeah. emotion. And that's almost exactly what <laughs> yeah. it's like. Yeah. Yeah. But recursiveness was actually embedded, I think, in what we were doing. Like, this was one of the conversations we kept having, was uh, bringing up various literatures which were like, um, about sort of looking back on themselves. And, and so I, I think those feedback loops are kind of important actually as, as a kind of um, uh, generative process to sort of to sort of look at them and pick them open um, I, I can't help but think but about um, Google image search as a way of sort of flattening these historical yeah. things so that what is postmodern is not on a linear timeline anymore but it's on a sort of a, a sampling of images so which you can choose from and that those begin to sort of Hope, I guess, A, if we're going to continue on crunchiness, which growing with Berkeley, crunchy means something different. But, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that there is this sort of uh, sense that uh, 
all is available for adaptive reuse, and if we can you know, sort of use No, it. and I think that that's that because I think that what is much more of a reality in terms of what the digital is doing um, in terms of difference is that kind of instant availability of imagery that you you don't have to send a student off to a library to find out who James Sterling was, who, of course, they've never heard of when you mention them, because they go, James, how do you spell that? And as you're talking to them, you know, out comes everything he ever did. Um, but it's also the same generation. You know, what do we, here we are speaking about people we are not, which is always dangerous. But uh, I, I think that it's, it, it seems pretty clear that my students have this incredible hunger for real experiences uh, and they it's especially too obviously at Taliesin where they want to like live in desert shelters and that's why they're there uh, which is a pretty extreme version of it but but people are not so interested in buying the latest thing they're interested in having the latest experience and it's that kind of combination again of the wanting to have the kind of reality check experience um, I, you, someone, someone was saying about here comes gravity and I kept thinking of the Eminem line uh, 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 here comes reality oops there goes gravity uh, that kind of combination of, of weightlessness and vertigo uh, with this kind of smack in your face uh, reality that's you know the backbeat you can't lose so to speak I think that's, evident. that's testament to the idea that, that nostalgia has been put aside despite the fact that these, the contrivances that make these things interesting might be based in previous ideas. It's not, it's not the value of those previous ideas that makes the new product interesting. It's, I think it's the investment or the idea that, that experience is kind of evolving things and perpetually new things is the top agenda. Is the true nature of the pursuit there. And because our mother, we started to kind of talk about, well, maybe nostalgia still does play a role. I'm not so sure. Like, I think that, I think that it's uh, you know, the rhetoric surrounding the importance of new experience is still kind of core thing. To, to get it by any means necessary, it's a new kind of agenda that is made possible by the availability of all this information. And I think that's really true. It's generative. Ultimately, it's generative. It's not nostalgia. Yeah, I mean, people talk about why do all these biennales and do these events because people want to come here to have this experience. I mean, they could get a lot of, all of the information surfing away, but you come, it's not just that Binala turned out to be very cheap ways to do city promotion, which is the real reason why they're proliferating, uh, but also because uh, there's a hunger for having that kind of experience, or, you know, I'm sure all of your feeds like mine are full with everyone's experiences in Miami Beach this week, you know, it's this kind of, you go to these things to have these experiences. But I wonder, I mean, Jenny comes out of sort of UX and, and interaction, so like, is this a conversation on that side of the table as well in media life? Is the authentic or the kind of need for this kind of instant experience something that is... Like we're questioning it as an architectural mm. question. Is it also a media or a digital question? New experiences. Yeah. Well, like the idea of that of creating something which fosters ex kind of a new experience. Yeah. If anything, I feel like it's it's a constant discussion within interaction design and almost like too much new. Mm. You know, it's just like it's um, it's so easy to build like a new application or a new software and it can happen so quickly. I 
if anything, I feel like interaction design was sort of um, resistant. We sort of work always in wireframe in order to like resist moving towards that like finish or that final resolution. Um, and almost slow down that like that quickly developing all these new experiences and new applications and um, I guess where interaction design talks about it in terms of like observing like Silicon Valley and how quickly everything's moving and um, how people are just sort of like replicating experiences that already exist. So I don't know if that's, I mean that's like from our perspective, um, the issues that are coming up. Yeah. I, I just want to add because I had this conversation with Renee Dalder a couple of years ago, and we were just reflecting on something a lot, a lot about what you were saying about the just the speed of Silicon Valley, let's say, as, as a stand-in for all the technological And we kind of were sort of both kind of hit on this one point where we realized we were sort of we've been in the era of the engineer in a way. You know, the engineer has been the, the superhero of the last 10 years in terms of the introduction of all sorts of new technologies. Mm. And that, I'm not so sure because remember, again, it was, you know, Steve Jobs always fighting the engineer and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but, and that's interesting. No, I mean, I think that's really interesting because Jobs' relationship, my sort of read on it, yeah. is that... Or that's a myth, at least. No, but, but I, think it's, I, mean, I think it's useful because, in a way, it's, it's a sea of engineers that make it possible. Right. And Jobs, in this respect, and this is where I think it's useful in this conversation, is sort of, I think of it as like the consummate designer saying, you know, no, it needs to be this way. And no, it needs to be this way. You know, just, just adjusting the thing as it comes back. And, and it's the author of the brief, right? You know, an author, of course, all, with all, all uh, assumptions of mastery and the patriarchal tradition in, in, in intended, you know, so nevertheless. Um, but that, nevertheless, I, I just wanted to say that um, that that's what why I brought. I was interested in, in your bringing up, you know, aesthetics, just straight up aesthetics, because it's almost as though, you know, we've been hurled forward by these, this capability that engineers have given us, let's say, as channeled by a certain number of individuals, let's say. Um, but it, ha it, it it's almost as though it's been too fast to be consumed as a part of our culture in a way. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like we've, we've digested it, but it hasn't, it hasn't had time to be etched in, into the stone that can be the ruin you know, that we then look back on. You know? um, and, I mean, and these kinds of ex examples have, have been used over and over again, but consider uh, you know, three updates ago of Facebook. You know, what did that interface look like? Or, or you know, the, the, you know, early versions of a, of, a, of a software, you know, they're gone forever. And and in the Bessler's, um, you know, uh, piece in this in this um, in this show, um, we were just excited about the simple notion of that as a form of archaeology, as as a kind of a um, a ruin of of this extremely ephemeral, um, but but no less real, no less valuable, no less a part of our culture. Um, than, than all of these other things. Uh, and so I guess I'm just saying that, you know, this idea of resisting the reality, it, it's, almost, it's almost as though we've, we have to learn to work backwards. We almost have to learn to slow down time. And, and I guess that's why this notion of nostalgia, may, maybe you're right, maybe, it's, maybe that's not the right word. Maybe it's actually something it, that is a, is a quality that humans need to now develop, which is, to build our own histories because that history is right behind us and just, you know, it's either it's either disappeared 
or it's or it's or it's etched forever, you know, in in the collective. I'm not sure if it's that that etched. I mean, I'm I'm sort of thinking about two two one book I read fairly recently, one that I'm will be reading for the next couple of years probably. Well, the first is the you probably already know which one that is. Uh, the 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 first is the uh, Neil Stevenson's uh, Reindy Reed Reindy whatever it was the misspelling of Read Me, uh, which was I don't know if any of you read it, but it's it's a novel written like a video game. You start reading it, and it's about what's going on in the video game. And as you read this almost thousand-page novel, you realize that he's writing it as a video game. So part of what's going on is there's this back and forth between this virtual world in which people are battling each other and a real world in which people are battling each other. And part of it, what's going on is that the, the, the whole style of the writing is takes you into a world where you're in this kind of slick world. And then, of course, the other novel I'm reading is Knausgaard's uh, My Struggle. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fellow. Uh, I, I'm, on, <laughs> I'm, on number, I'm on number three right now. And uh, the, the uncanny ability he has to walk down the street as a 16-year-old and you are completely fascinated for 20 pages by him just walking down the street and having completely, not banal, but normal experiences. And part of it is that they, that they resonate. Uh, and that they're, they're not nostalgic. Um, but they're, they have this kind of quality of, of recall, of echo, uh, of bouncing back on you. And, and the whole structure of those books is, is to bounce back between the moments before, after, and during self-realization. So it keeps bouncing from innocence of life and him looking back at the kind of completely innocent things you did as a kid and what they really meant, him as an adult getting all philosophical and deep about things, and him in the middle as a teenager, as a young adult, having his crisis of what do I know, what does it mean, where am I going, what am I experiencing, and that kind the ability to collage those together is what makes those books so incredibly And, and there's intense. a phrase in the first one that says um, that the aspiration of literature is, is not to describe what is there, but is to become the there itself. Yeah. And, and that, that's something, you know, in, in your description of this cycle of the stone to the brick to the, I mean, you know, that was very, it's very moving, this notion of like everything is always just sort of looking to the next and it's just kind of recursive and, and, um, and I don't know, just... It also takes out the notion of the, I mean, the piece in that where there, it's not looking for transcendence, like we're not looking for transparency or transcendence anymore through the brick, uh, I thought it was really powerful to me because it suggests um, not that higher power, but sort of coming back to that question of what the normal and in, in sort of framing over the last few days, having to describe the show up there, you know, sort of we were setting an agenda for a new normal in a way than this post geographic. And so like <laughs> it's where you kind of just accept um, a, a condition uh, that we're in and sort of use that as the launching pad for this, you know, body of work to the, the essay, if you will. Um, I want to ask you guys to ask a question because I know that you've kind of been over there and I see notes happening. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I just wanted to, um, to comment on your uh, recursion topic or your, um, you just 
a minute before you you, you told us something about um, a fundamental um, movement of architecture or of, of the design disciplines mm -hmm. say, um, to do this recursion or recursive um, rounds, let's say. So and and perhaps that that is connecting to your question from the beginning, the primitive hub. It's it's also um, a sort of um, freedom, I think, um, in our in our culture um, to look back and to be futuristic or nostalgic. <laughs> and I I would. I would ask you um, that it's a spontaneous question. I have a different one on my on, on my note. My Let's notes. go. But my spontaneous, uh, my spontaneous question is: um, as I as I watch your video um, and the description, I, I read the description. Um, you told us about um, the building as an organism. Or as a as a pathological organism, and uh, so I I imagine um, the building as something that is sick in a good way, perhaps even. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's bad. Yeah, um, and I was wondering um, if if the building is sick. Uh, this organism, for me, organism, I have to define uh, perhaps um, because. Um, um, you have an, you have different um, definitions. So for me, an organism is really, um, and that's why um, modern architecture so heavily uh, referred to this uh, notion, is something um, or is a state when form and content um, you cannot separate form and content. It's absolutely the same, let's say. If there is no, yes, you cannot take them apart without destroying everything. Uh, so I, I was wondering how you, how you uh, somehow introduce the, the sickness into, uh, into the medial form that you are um, developing. Because with uh, your work, uh, I understand completely your. Um, your random mode, let's say, <laughs> which is no random mode, yes, and somehow transporting a comment on our media practices as well. Um, but in your work, you're so perfect, uh, you're so perfect renderer and so perfect in animation uh, that I was wondering how, at what point, uh, because I think there is some sort of friction or something, at what point um, is, is is, the, is uh, your media practice also sick? Hmm. If the content is sick, which is the building or the architecture. But you could also think of it as sick in the rap sense. <laughs> <laughs> or ill. Or S-I-C. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, gosh. Um, I think one of the, one of the, uh, the things that might explain the, 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 uh, the schism between the, the, the nature of the presentation and the nature of the subject matter is that the, the you know, my practice is wholly invested in the question of the built environment as opposed to the media that delivers the message. We felt kind of a little bit prisoner, held prisoner by the notion that some of the things that we were pursuing as far as the building is concerned um, required a degree of simulation uh, that uh, essentially was not commensurate with the nature of the product that we were trying to simulate. Uh, 
Like many of the effects of a building that's under duress or exhibiting pathological tendencies, like can't be talked about in like the normal terms of what makes a building valuable. Because in many cases, these things uh, affect its practical capacity, and uh, we need to find a way to uh, present the building such that other dimensions of the problem came into sharp focus, so that the value is reestablished for the audience in a general sense. So, yeah, the building is. You know, all of its kind of material properties are rendered with great care in order to kind of make sure that that's still part of the conversation whenever we're taking so much else off the table as far as the practical conversation is concerned, which is usually the place where we we associate the kind of the architect's big contribution uh, to these kinds of things is in terms of like what, how they're, uh, well, as a problem solver, societal problem solver. Um, so I, I think that. Uh, when you start talking about the medium itself, it, it, from my point of view, it was more of just that it, it, it was strictly a vehicle. Uh, and more often than not, I find myself in forums like this where you, the, the conversation is focused on the relationship between the architectural content and the medium itself as an insoluble thing. And I, uh, I always find myself scratching my head at that moment because uh, at, the, at, a, at, a, at a certain level, um, these two things are very separate. Uh, and that often takes me out of the conversation about how new media affects architectural practices. Because the ironic thing is that we see buildings, in the studio, we see buildings as insoluble entities. And that's what makes them organic. And the, one of the things that we're a little bit uh, bored with is the notion that we talk about buildings perpetually as being other kinds of things or manifestations, manifestations of other kinds of ideas. Uh, and, we think it would be refreshing just to have a conversation about a building in its kind of buildingness. And one of the ways in which that comes out most clearly is through the kind of pathological dimension. When a building gets sick, like its true essence is what it becomes the most clear. And that's an interesting kind of uh, inflection point as far as the kind of conversation about design and architecture is concerned. Where we grow away from ideas about design, we seem to get closer to the essence of what an architectural proposal is. And that's, I, that's maybe up for debate, but we find ourselves kind of in a moment there where we can't really talk about the things outside of terms of building itself. Like no, there is no metaphor that helps kind of get us around the kind of idea that we're wrestling with some kind of essential properties there. Uh, and uh, I feel like um, at that point the video is just a kind of means to an end. Um, okay. But I, I feel, and that's uh, where the nostalgic yeah, mind return because what is uh, interesting with the uh, with the Google uh, baselines uh, work is uh, that it somehow is nostalgic in a way somehow it, it, it shows um, us uh, that even if technology or at that moment uh, when technology is somehow imperfect or somehow uh, we we um, recognize this friction or, or or mistake and error. Or vulnerability. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it, it somehow uh, we can at, at this moment I think we can appropriate it more than at any time else or at another moment. And uh, and I thought um, this slickness um, is also part of um, not knowing um, what um, media or technology. Um, is worth when when it's when there is a failure also. Mm. So 
So for me, it's for me it's not not or it's impossible to separate uh, how we how we like, how, how we apply media from from what it depicts or what, what we want to, to tell the story we want to tell. So that was my question. That was, that was a hard lesson that I learned in the process of making that video. So like, Can you talk about like because you distract ourselves from that conversation it just keeps coming back. Mm -hmm. So you know. But John, you you've said before that, that you've made the video, the three pieces are done over a period of time, and that the there is difference in sort of resolution on each of them, even you know even though they are sort of at the highest of their capabilities at any given time, but they're. That each each one actually does represent a sort of temporal sort of stage in the software. What well, to put words yeah. in your mouth? But. Well, no, no. I mean, that's <laughs> it, and you know, I should be held accountable for that. The, uh, <laughs> uh, it, the fact that the technology was changing allowed us to pursue uh, different pathological ideas, which previously would have been inaccessible, to us, which is great. Uh, and it also opened up different ways in which document those things from, from a cinematic point of view. Uh, and, you know, the medium became a way for us to kind of not only probe these things in, in a more, more uh, uh, thorough way, but also to romanticize them a little bit. Uh, so that the, we would find a balance of, well, let's say more of a counterweight to the practical argument, which was kind of coming out from other houses we certainly really invest ourselves in the notion that that design as a practical exercise was not really kind of getting, was not covering the entire kind of bandwidth of experiential possibility within, within the buildings that we wanted to. Explore. I just want to inject one sort of thought about that. Because one thing that really strikes me with your work, John, is, and, and you might not accept this or want to be a part of it, but I, I'm moved by knowing how much labor went into those things. I'm not, and I'm, I mean that very sincerely, like, it's at least as much work as would go into building the damn buildings themselves. Felt that way. <laughs> I'm certain of it. No, I'm certain of it. I mean, anyone who's labored to create, you know, work of that density knows that it's hours and hours of labor, and um, and I, I think that's not irrelevant. I, I think that, um, you know, um, I mean, it's it's funny because speaking also of nostalgia, you know, like the, the, the observation about the best of like, that's this kind of um, vulnerability. You see that in Google, and there's something almost touching about it. it almost kind of changes the power relationship to, to the Google machine and, and and the user, which is a weird phenomenon. And and then with this, I, I you know I um, the notion that there's something uh, there's something death-like about the idea of of achieving. You know, it's like it's like um, uh, Pygmalion or something. You know, like creating the reality. But when you do, you know, that's that's death. You know, and I'm not to be so morbid about your project, but I'm just saying. You but started I, with I know, I guess so, I guess so. But just, I'm just saying that, that you know, um, you know, what 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 happens when every joke has been told, or when when every you know when everything's played out? There's nothing. And, and even though that's what we've been pursuing, and I don't know, I guess I'm just sort of suggesting that somehow. Media is not always easy, and somehow seeing that, I'm, I, I think of the labor as part of what I'm, if you will, uh, encountering, and, 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 and that is, as I don't think of it as slick in that respect. It's actually part of the resistance is your pursuit of like always finding more to, to represent. I don't know. That's just one read on it.
lower resolution locomotives that we were engaging in software that, like logistics software. So using it, and it doesn't have a render mode. Like there is no render option. And I think that was really important to us engaging in the tool set um, as like a form of research and seeing what those like the capabilities and just sort of like I guess play with it and hack into it and I mean I think like logistical growth was one where we combined like logistics software with crowd um, crowd simulation software and somehow tried to blend it together and just let it be what it was and not try it recreate it find instances of where uh, you're able to get that kind of density and detail, however, it is really breathtaking. There's something very liberating about the piece that I envy quite a bit, because they, while you know, degree of contrivance I think is necessary to kind of enter into the kind of conversation that this entire display here uh, is reveling in, um, it, it, it would be nice to find a way to get it automatically means that they're expedient, but without compromising any richness and detail, it comes to more Tory you know, one thing that was amazing, this summer we went on a tour of a logistics uh, center, one of the world's largest buildings in, in um, the Marina Valley. Um, but it's massive, uh, half mile long by half mile wide building. And um, and all sorts of moments, I'll just tell you one, one moment that really struck me is we saw this long conveyor with boxes seemingly randomly on this conveyor, right? And I was like, oh, that looks so, so clumsy, you know, you know what, what nasty software they must have. Well, there are all these conveyors pointed, channeling into this, and each box would come and line up perfectly with the gap. And that was amazing to me, and it, and it actually struck me that... You know, as there's software, perhaps we associate a kind of reality of, of the image reproduction as part of the power of that software. Simulate, uh, or um, Simio, which is what, what was used in that, in, in our project, um, it's, it's, its metric of reality isn't in visual verisimilitude, it's in, it's in tracking the world. So it, it, you know, so it might look really rough on the screen, but it is an interface as well as a, a, a signal of representation. And, and, and when you were saying content and form, you know, just literally collapsed. That's what Simeo is, I mean, in a certain respect. Um, it, and and it's, it's very powerful and strange and, and awkward, but it's interesting to think about that, not unlike what BIM is doing to our perception of buildings. You know, you change the size of a window and it notifies the supplier and, and it checks in with the code if that's legal. And, you know, all of these things are connected. Um, and and I, I'm just fascinated in that as a, as, as a layer on this question of, of our connection to reality. You know, it's not just a, a, a visually dominant conversation. There is something, I was reading in the catalog, uh, that you, you had, read the catalog. Oh my God! I was stumbling through it this morning. That you had said um, enough buildings, enough objects, enough images, and we've kind of gone down a sort of a media rabbit hole here. But I, I wonder, like, I wonder how do we take sort of this stuff and begin? Does it need to reapply back into the built environment? Can it reapply? Um, this is going to sound a little tangential, but like I was speaking with the folks at the Getty Research Institute who are doing all of the work on concrete modernism, 
and that there is that some of the problems with the modernist buildings uh, are, is that they're they were so built for one function that they're very difficult to adapt, um, and that you know sort of can these media things, which are sort of designed in sort of an a space. Um, sort of begin to influence back to the kind of complexities of spaces like this and that we're in. Um, sort of an open question to the table of people's thoughts on it. It's because it's we're kind of we're not making sort of super distinctions between any of these things, but I think there might be some lovely kind of overlaps in here. I, if you bear with me on that sort of well, I mean, open sort of wonder question. when when things are going to turn around from uh, media. Uh, tracing reality to reality tracing media and of course it's already happened but I, 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 you, you have to imagine well you don't have to but I would imagine that all of this kind of texture mapping that's becoming such a wow wow zow thing that every city has to do at least you know oh projection mapping yeah exactly um, that that's going to become permanent at some point that it will just become a permanent way, part of how you make buildings, in the same way that that great event, well, my world, that great event where when they were trying to restore these Rothko's at MIT, was MIT? Uh, Harvard? Harvard. And they realized they couldn't ever get that pigment back, so they just came up with a lighting scheme that is, they found a way of doing archaeology on the paint, figured out what the tint originally was, and then programmed the light so that when you look at the painting, you see, huh. theoretically, see it exactly the way it was that Rothko painted it. Uh, so those kind of reprojections onto reality seem to me like the next phase. It's, it's all been developed uh, in, uh, for screens you sit and watch, but now we're seeing it appear uh, in, in crunchy reality. Now we're seeing it become part of us. And, and now it's so far only happening in very rarefied places or in special occasions uh, but like pop-up stores you know, sooner or later it turns into something more yeah, yeah. I was also thinking about like how um, uh, Gary Partners is using Trimble to map the LA River which um, is going to make a, that a big adaptive reuse if, because yeah. they're able to sort of get the 3D modeling yeah. um, and that then identify the different spaces where it, so it's like taking hardscapes that are difficult and sort of digitizing them. Yeah, but I guess so part of the point is so maybe because one of the things that they say is they don't want to pretty it up and gentrify it. Yeah. No. So maybe they'll just use projection software to put stuff on there. Um, I'm going to propose maybe wrapping this because yeah. we're getting a little competing here. Uh, and if anyone didn't wants to add anything, maybe we do it over a drink. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good idea. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for listening to this bonus Archonnect Sessions episode featuring Mimi Zeiger and Tim Durfee, introducing the Where is Now, When is Then discussion of their exhibition at the Bi-City Biennale of Urbanism and Architecture, Now There, Scenes from the Post-Geographic City.